when you look at what other people experience to kind of set your your own expectations. I, I always think that's such a beautiful move. We can get so aggravated about anything bad that happens to us as if we don't deserve anything bad to happen to us. Welcome to Stoa Conversations. Today, I am speaking with Professor Jennifer Baker, who teaches at the College of Charleston. Her research focuses on virtue ethics. And today, we'll be talking about that and, of course, talking about Stoicism. Thanks for joining. So great to be here. This is really an honor. Well, let's start with a tricky broad one. Yeah, how would you describe Stoicism? Well, I, I do always start um, slow in doing that because I, I teach these views. So I kind of have learned the value of um, beginning slowly because there are so many suggestions in ancient um, virtue ethics and classical virtue ethics that just aren't common sense today. So um, usually I um, begin by describing like an Aristotelian uh, take on, on choice. And I feel like that usually gets students um, uh, taking on some of the assumptions of, of the ancients. You know, it's a, an easy way in. And then if I explain Aristotelianism before Stoicism, I notice that um, the Stoicism is appreciated uh, a little bit more and um, people don't just have knee-jerk critical reactions to it, which I find enough in other academics. So I, I like to avoid those. I don't have very good responses to those. <laughs> That's interesting. Why, why do you think that is? I guess it's like lines, lines about like your children are nothing to you. I mean, I'll notice people latching on to something they've, you know, a, a line they've read that a Stoic said, mm -hmm. um, and then they just refuse to, to budge from it. Um, and, uh, and it, once you're at the point where people are choosing an Aristotelian virtue ethics over a Stoic one, I mean, then, you know, I'm, I don't have that much, that much to say. So that's probably what's going on when someone's, you know, quoting the Stoics, they're choosing Aristotle over the Stoics. But I that's have right. found it very hard to motivate interest in uh, classical virtue ethics among contemporary ethicists. And, and I'm not sure why I don't have a lot of success with that, but I think it's because there are a lot of assumptions about our psychology and, a, you know, a, a big, robust account of moral psychology that people just aren't ready to take on. But I think that's actually a shame, you know, because there, there should be those associated with any ethical account. And, you know, we could examine those and that, then we could look at how to better those. But um, I don't notice a lot of tolerance for the, those sorts of topics in contemporary ethics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is sort of a a discussion that almost focuses on ethics as moral metaphysics or yes. uh, something of that nature that I think yes. is more congenial to different forms of consequentialism or deontology. Oh, that's such a good way to put it. And then it's like the contest is who has the better argument or the, you know, the, the superior point at the moment. And it's just not something that's tested in everyday normal people over their lives. And I, I guess I get how frustrating it must be to, to be told that the real test of ethics is out in the world, not, you know, in the most right, recent right. article, <laughs> not in their last paragraph. <laughs> that is frustrating, but I imagine uh, it seems, seems entirely correct. That, that is some comfort. Um, I mean, there are other, there are other like domains of academia where there does seem to be a lot of tolerance for some of the assumptions of, of ancient virtue ethics, like, um, you know, in medicine, anytime uh, the sacrifices of clinicians is described or, you know, even professionalism. I mean, so it's not that I don't see support for it, but in my particular uh, area of, of ethical theory, there just are not that many of us um, fighting this fight. <laughs> I got it. got it. So you mentioned that students or people are maybe more receptive to stoicism after they get a sense of Aristotelian virtue ethics. Yeah. I wonder if you could, we don't talk too much about Aristotelianism on this podcast, at least haven't so far. So I wonder if you could lay out just very, very quickly for people who aren't familiar with Aristotle's virtue ethics, what that amounts to. And then I would, I would be curious what your thoughts are on whether that makes Stoicism more uh, approachable or more plausible too. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, in, in some ways, I think, um, you know, Aristotle presents the view differently. And then um, commentators on Aristotle kind of reflect his style of presentation. So you just get kind of a, um, a more literary, I think, approach to the virtues when you have people doing work on virtue ethics, you know, these very beautiful descriptions of, of the good in our life. And that suits Aristotle because he was not after the kind of um, precision that you assume in Stoicism, especially with all the examples of the sage and, you know, completed practical rationality. That's not my favorite part of, of Stoicism, but that's a real nice contrast to Aristotle's approach. And Aristotle, of course, is going to think that um, sometimes we're best guided by our emotional reactions so that, you know, that's going to be something difficult to describe in advance. And then he also thinks is he seems to be very comfortable with the idea that there are some uh, tragic choices in life where there's 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 no there's no real way out. And, you know, the Stoics have more confidence that um, uh, we could discover something ethical to do in even the most difficult of, of circumstances. So I think those I think the role of emotion and the idea that there's 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 not a, a set of answers um, possible out there. I think those are very appealing to people. But also, I think his his more hesitant presentation style. And, you know, I, I don't think it was like his own writing. I, I hear their lecture notes, but he does write pretty beautifully sometimes. So I sometimes I think he's just an attractive ethicist. <laughs> it's nice to read Aristotle. And it doesn't make people uncomfortable because they don't have to think about the emotions eradicated or anything like that. He's he's a big fan of um, anger, for example. So that goes over really well with people. Right, right. In both philosophies, you have this idea of humans being geared towards eudaimonia, flourishing. And then the question isn't so much about, uh, you know, what rules should we follow to be happy? Or what consequences should we try to achieve in order to be happy? It's instead, you know, who should I be? And then for Aristotle, he leaves, I, I understand what you're saying. He leaves the, he has a slightly different, a less radical view of the emotions. So he thinks sometimes anger is appropriate. Right. Uh, and it's in, indeed not just appropriate, it's what we should respond to right. uh, certain circumstances. And then he also has, perhaps in some ways, is almost less systematic than, than the Stoics recognizes yeah. you, know, you need to do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. And there's right. a myriad of different factors determining what, what that is. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And I've, I've really been influenced by um, my advisor, Julia Annis's take on both views and then Martha Nussbaum's, who was my professor when I was an undergraduate and she was very gung-ho Aristotelian back then. And then I think her views have changed. I mean, I see so much stoicism in her <laughs> recent work. So that that move seems natural to me because I've I've made it myself. But you describe so well like the underlying um, similarities, and I think these are some of the things that you know contemporary people just uh, would need a long time to consider uh, before they accept. But the idea that you know we aren't born innocent, but that we um, really need to develop ourselves and kind of develop a second nature that it has to be very deliberate. That always bothers my students. I mean, I think we're very committed to the idea that we can be good accidentally and that we can oh, live yeah. a good life accidentally. That seems like a very deep commitment people have today. So when I suggest, no, it, it couldn't possibly be accidental. And if you did not know you were uh, developing yourself in an ethical way, you couldn't be that really seems <laughs> that seems very strident, I think, to people with a more contemporary um, ethics mindset. And then even the idea that we can be trusted for internalizing norms. I mean, I think the Stoics are far clearer on this than Aristotle. I, I, I can barely find Aristotle talking about norms, but I love that way of thinking of the Stoics that, I mean, Larry Becker is my inspiration here, but the idea that we're running into norms all the time. That's how we understand our own behavior. You know, we don't think of it as a one-off. We have things to say about it. We, we say simple sentences to ourselves about what we're doing. We use those simple sentences to correct other people. Um, and that we can internalize good norms and it goes well if the norms are good. <laughs> I mean, Aristotle talked about 
I think in the rhetoric, he mentions the kind of kickback you get if you uh, your psychology is 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 uh, reacting to, you know, some bad norm you're trying to trying to follow um, mm-hmm. or trying to endorse. So that, I think, is also not um, so easy for people to suggest is true about us, that we're very um, that that we have this practical rationality that can be explained in terms of norms that we don't know we're following norms that we take up one by one and consider and that there's a, a way to kind of match norms to each other and to try to be motivated by good norms. I just feel like that's that's a lot of moral psychology for people who may be more interested in other ways of arguing for what's ethical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Faster um, ways. <laughs> yeah, it is a, if you think about excellent people, there is a sense in which they almost do good by accident or at least they do yeah, good because that's who they are yeah automatically you wouldn't say by yeah. accident you would say that's who right. they are and there's a sense in which they don't need to deliberate as much as people who are yes. no uh, yes progressing but you can't you can't just jump to that state you need to you know use maybe think deliberate uh yes. think about what you know what your duties are and so on and craft yourself into that person that seems absolutely yeah. correct that's such a good point. Yeah, it's um, by accidental. I, I don't mean not automatic. Um, like you, you, you really did them some things for good behavior to uh, go down easy like that, you know, or to be even pleasurable or appear to you as the as the right option. I always laugh that I think I have what Aristotle called natural virtue, which is when you do not have virtue, but you seem nice or something. So people are, <laughs> are nice to you, but like that's a very shallow. I mean, you know. You catch anyone who just has natural virtue in a difficult or surprising situation, they won't have anything to rely on like practical rationality. So that might be a nice contrast to the person who's developed their practical rationality and now can can decide and act quickly um, without wondering about other bad options. Um, yeah, that wouldn't be the same as accidental natural virtue. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a, good, a good example and not something we've brought up before. Uh, natural virtue, okay. virtue, natural virtue in that sense. I mean, one thing I've been looking at lately is, um, so, you know, just not that everybody cares about what economists think about us, but it, it comes up sometimes and, and they do have a, a, I mean, I think they're committed to consequentialism in ways they don't acknowledge, but um, natural virtue, I, I feel is all that they've come to represent in their, in their modeling. I mean, it's neat, you know, it's neat that they, that they um, attempt to model us correctly, you know, so they can, make predictions. Um, and they're starting to include what I would call all sorts of components of natural virtue. You know, just people like to be reciprocal. People like to think that they're, you know, gracious or to be trusted. But I always think, yeah, it's just not stoic. It's not at all actual virtue. That's just natural virtue. And it gets reinforced by how people treat you, but it's completely dependent on that. You know, maybe it won't disappear immediately. Those norms might be internalized by you to some extent, but it's really, it's really based in, you know, an in- interest in the consequences of it. Right, right. If it, if it stops working out for you, well, you're, you're no longer going to be gracious. <laughs> you know, you're no longer going to care about reciprocity in a different situation. Anyway, I was just uh, thinking that natural virtue should be the term that they use instead of virtue when they're looking at us from that perspective. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's such an interesting idea because if you think some of the uh, work on what's sometimes called like the bourgeoisie virtues, uh-huh, being yeah. trusting, being reciprocal, uh, yeah. essentially being someone who's good to work with, uh-huh. in a sense, you've got some aspects of virtue following good, good rules, as it were. You're probably doing the right thing in at least the circumstances you happen to find yourself in. Yeah. But if they're not motivated by that, some underlying character, then yes. following you may, you may not end up being virtuous outside of uh that what you're normally normally presented with when th- when things go when things go wrong or uh, well for sure and i think deirdre mcclowski admits that she has this nice line i like um the beginning of one of those books and you know it's just like i don't mean i don't mean virtue in the philosophical sense you know she really is talking about like commercial virtues and one one I mean, I, I know she thinks people with those virtues are creative, with commercial virtues are creative, but like one contrast would be like 
virtue. I think she calls it worthy of the name, you know, so philosophical ancient accounts of virtue um, are important for us to recognize because we will get new ideas about what it is right to do from that person who's developed their practical rationality. But if you're just using natural virtues or, you know, acting in a um, commercially friendly way, trustworthy just to the extent and, and in a way that you're showing off because it brings it brings rewards, you know, lots of virtue signaling in that in, in what she describes as like commercial virtues. Um, those are just going to be um, those are going to be very conventional ideas about ethics. Like we wouldn't be surprised by anyone who's learned how to get along well in commercial society. We're their audience. So they're they're going to be doing what we like. I, there's some research that um, you can seem trustworthy as a salesperson if you have a photo of a family in your office. It doesn't have to be your actual family. Like, you know, it's just, I think the economists call it hostages to fortune, which is a funny, very funny that they call a picture of a family that. But, you know, it can be so phony and you can be aware it's so phony and temporary. So, yeah, we, right, should, right. Have, we should have more terms and, and sharp distinctions. I think there's also the issue where there's some amount of research showing that people who are materially successful tend to be in the slogan form better people because they are better at cooperating with others. And there's yeah. one, I think one of the question marks around that research is, is it just that these people cooperate with people 99% of the time and then are strategic and when they decide to harm others yeah. and do wrong in the way that others are not? Oh, never. Um, oh yeah, sure. How would they know? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. great. And then also, I mean, you reach a level of success. It's so obvious to me, observing um, people treat you better. I mean, some of us just get treated well from the from the start. Uh, and so, you know, maybe they will have commercial success because um, we like some of their qualities. And then that just continues on. <laughs> They're going to feel great about everything. What do, what do they have to be upset about? There were, I just right, only right. remember the title of this, but it was it was suggesting that you could even guess someone's socioeconomic status by maybe their expressions or something like that. And I thought, well, wealthy people are going to look more relaxed and pleasant, you know, just less stress, you know. So <laughs> do we respond well to that? Probably. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, maybe in some subtle ways healthier or something. Yeah. Uh, it, it has, I think it does. It's an interesting question around how many different feedback loops cycles people get get stuck yes. in just by having to be in certain circumstances it is that is so thinking about now that virtue in the deeper sense uh since we sort of found ourselves on the, on this topic of the market economy and careers and so on like how do you think about what the stoics would say uh, like it just is the project of becoming more virtuous in the market. How can you use stoicism to be more virtuous people in our in our economic dealings and our careers and so on? Well, I really like stoics on the topic of markets. And it, like, once again, if it's okay, I'll just do a contrast to Aristotle, who, you know, it's hard to have sympathy for Aristotle, except he had to describe economics with no help. And so uh, to me, he's a good example of what happens when we're very moralistic about markets, which work in kind of an indirect way, I'm, I'm kind of an opponent of the idea that every transaction is of two-way benefit. I mean, we wouldn't have reviews on Yelp that are so negative if they were true. You know, it's just like that's that's that cannot be the case. And Aristotle only looked at that and was very, um, you know, condemning of profit. You know, somebody ripped somebody off and suggested we should have no retail trade. So mm -hmm. he he's looking at markets and he wants them to be ethical in some like direct way that's really naive and just, you know, is, is completely unworkable. It's embarrassing. I've, I've seen some, um, I've seen some um, historians uh, report on Aristotle on the economy and they're like, well, he probably didn't have a job. He never labored. You know, people are looking for excuses for Aristotle on his take. But then the Stoics just do such a um, good job, I think, at dealing with, you know, how strange markets are and, and, and how strange it is that, you know, we come up with prices in this collective way and how strange it is that, you know, someone might be angry about their meal at the restaurant, but we have a sense that over time with the right legal structure, you know, all sorts of other things in place that we don't have a list of yet, uh, general affluence is benefited through markets. I just think they've come up with concepts to handle that. 
And I think they look at how agents can understand what they're doing in markets in a way that, I mean, I would say nobody else does. So, you know, some religious views like Catholicism will give you some advice on how to act in markets, but not, it, it doesn't really reach to like, you know, what should I do now? Or should I make this sale? Or, I mean, it's, it's, it's vague um, if you actually try and, and, and follow it. But the Stoics, what they innovated on was the idea that you could detach yourself from economic good or value. I think to be strict, I would have to say economic value, not good. So like only virtue is good. And they would refer to economic value. They would um, categorize that as uh, an indifferent. So then you kind of get to play business or markets like a game. And you can focus on your sportsmanship and you won't do anything terrible or embarrassing or regrettable to, you know, score some points in this game. And then there are other benefits that I think, though they weren't thinking about markets, some of the ancient philosopher, the scholars of ancient philosophy, they've described really well why the Stoics would come up with a category of moral indifference. And they point out that it it's a reminder of... Um, you know, that we're a collective and, and that we share things and, you know, we, we, we shouldn't think of anything we own as, as just ours in some cosmic sense. But I think that applies really well um, to um, markets and success in markets. So I think they can endorse all sorts of market norms, but they do so carefully so that when it's not a, a situation where you should be selling they have an ancient example that Cicero reports where you're the first one to arrive at a famine-torn island. I always use that expression, famine-torn, when I, when, I, when I talk about this passage. I don't know where that comes from, but it's a famine-torn island. And you, you are a good person, that's stipulated, but you don't know if you should reveal to the people buying the supplies you've brought that there are ships behind you. Like, do you follow normal, standard business norms? You would never tell your other customers. You have plenty to focus on. You don't tell your other customers about deals um, that are, you know, potentially coming along. Or it, because it's a famine, are you in a circumstance where business norms don't apply? You know, should you just do the humane thing? Strangely, they don't suggest, like, just handing over the supplies. Maybe it's not so strange. But I just love... Um, that example, first of all, two Stoics disagree on it, which, you know, to me kind of shows how, how hard we have to work with Stoicism. It's really a view that like, you know, we have to work ourselves. So you could be justified, according to the ancient Stoics, if you did not reveal there were ships coming behind you, or if you did, you know, it's going to depend on your reasoning. But in both cases, um, they think you can keep in mind, you know, the good of others, like the, 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 the social good that you're doing. So that's a big compliment to business norms. I feel like they were really pointing out that not immediately, but like over time, they really contribute to um, general affluence in an important way. Like it like just, they have, business norms have to be complemented for that reason because it's a mm -hmm. disaster if we don't have them in place as we, you know, as we can see all over. Um, and I just think that's so sophisticated for them to have realized in ancient times. And with how complicated ancient, I mean, our economy is complicated today, but I'm, I'm not sure it was less complicated back then. <laughs> right, right. So I, I like their flexibility. I think we need their flexibility and um, a few of their categories like indifference to talk about um, markets and ethics today. And I would suggest that economists are um, talking about moral indifference, you know, when they, they, they talk about what we're after in markets, cause they're not, they're not looking at, at ethics. I mean, you know, as they mm -hmm. say, and I also would think when they model our behavior in markets, we might usefully refer to what we're doing as selecting rather than choosing to kind of remind us that, you know, like a choice would be someone's ethical decision. And, you know, when we buy something and they know it, they have no information about whether, we were being ethical or not. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So how, how would you, in the, in, that, in the example you gave, how would you act well in the case where you don't tell the customers in this you know, famine-torn island I, that there are, boats, there are boats coming over? 
I think you would have, to, I think you'd be acting well because you'd be um, able to justify, you'd be able to give an account. So he, he gives an account of, of what you'd be doing. And you'd have to say like, listen, I'm contributing to um, this market system. Uh, I'm, I'm bringing goods that people are, you know, willingly buying, right? You know, so no, nobody's being tricked in the situation. Like they're, they're, they're still getting a deal. They're still offering their money. And I am, um, I'm, I'm just going to go with the system that brings general affluence elsewhere. We're going to need it in time on this island. So I'm just maintaining this, these business standards. Um, yeah, that's like, that's, that's one of the views. And, and then the other would just be like, this actually counts as an emergency. So all, all that is off. I, it would depend on like if you if you thought you were setting a, a precedent or not. I think. Right, right. Isn't got that it, good? I it. just think that's a nice. I mean, I guess it'd be better if they agreed on an answer, but I I still think that's a nice analysis. And we forget that when we're pursuing business norms, um, even though we do, I don't I don't know why we don't pay attention, but because my children are so young, they're getting their first jobs, and it's been so funny as they encounter marketplace norms. My daughter was working at a drive-through fast food place and she was bringing her own money from home to give customers change because the the managers weren't providing, they'd run out of change, you know, early in the morning and wouldn't get any more. And it was just so funny to see everyone just yell at, you know, get so angry with her for not understanding she was in a market. <laughs> I mean, she just, she felt so bad for customers who wouldn't get their 35 cents back. But she had to be walked back from the idea that markets are about directly providing. It's not, I don't think it's direct provision. It's, it's something trickier going on. And um, uh, we might eventually all come to understand the deal um, that it's a, a, a bit competitive, but I think the justification is, you know, long-term, it helps us maintain general affluence. Not that every single transaction has to be well-motivated or, or be one people are grateful for anything like that. Right, right. Yeah, perhaps there's, there's a loose analogy between Stoics thinking what's important is to cultivate yourself into a certain person over time. And that's a project of, of a lifetime, really. And you're not thinking about, you know, in this decision, or you don't... At, of course, you think about things on a decision-related basis, but you're not as focused on thinking about what are the absolute prohibitions, absolute obligations within a particular slice of time. Instead, your decisions yeah. build on one another, right, and, and shape you yes. into a kind of person. So maybe maybe oh, there's an analogy there to when you think about social systems broadly, when we're not thinking about, or at least a stoic approach to a social system would be, you know, like, what sort of city are we building over time with these norms? What sort of nation are we building over time? Not, yeah. you know, what kind of absolute prohibition or obligation should we enforce in a given given decision? Because especially with things like markets, the matter gets so complicated. It includes so many different people over different time spans, different spaces, of course. And yeah. the approach of thinking about, oh, we must always, we should never say price gouge or something like this. Yeah, is, right. is is not uh, is too probably too narrow. Of yes, an approach. yes, yes. Or that we we always have others' interests in minds, or that we're always beneficent towards our. You know, I mean, I have laughed that you can you can interview someone working as a server in a restaurant. They don't even think they're well intentioned when they recommend coffee after dinner. I mean, it's just such an unrealistic description of what we're doing. And there's nothing wrong with them recommending coffee after dinner. But I don't know why we have to you know, dress it up in a little bow, like that they're, they're really concerned about us being awake after a big dinner. Right, right. <laughs> they're not concerned about that. <laughs> yeah, that's really helpful. And that's like, the way you described it is such a nice compliment to practical rationality. If we go with the idea that it works with, you know, the, the sayables or statements of norms, because that, that would give us a far more sophisticated analysis than a 15 year old would have of, you know, what customers deserve you know uh, it's that's a far more complex um question what are what are, what are the norms that we can follow or recommend or endorse that benefit society long term that's hard mm -hmm. one of my favorite ideas from epictetus is his focus on role ethics and i think he gets it from Pausanias, this 
and or Cicero talks about this as, as well, but you have thinking about yourself as having these different roles. Some of them are shared, others are uh, in, individual to our specific talents, circumstance, uh, and preferences. And I think that frame for me and for others thinking about, you know, what does it look like to be an excellent human here? What does it look like to be a good partner, a good neighbor, what have yeah. you is, is uh, useful for guiding, uh, guiding different, guiding different decisions. Yes. Well, I agree. And, well, what do you think is one of the most underrated ideas in Stoicism? I think it is a shame that we worry a lot about happiness together, you know, like, uh, public discussions, journalists, uh, however we do that sort of thing. Um, you know, it's a big topic in psychology today. You know, people worry about happiness, but but don't ever seem to suggest to the public, other than you brave podcasters, that um, that virtue ethics might be the answer. So that's like a lot of wasted time, I think. You know, I mean, it's amazing to me, like the, the new books that'll come out with ideas on happiness and they're just like rebaked things that like the Stoics and Aristotle just knocked out and Plato, like they already knocked these ideas away. <laughs> so I'm, I'm surprised at how um, tolerant people are for ideas about happiness that are really partial or on, on, they don't work. Um, you know, I'll see people worry about happiness for years and uh, it, it, ne it never even helps them, you know? So it's like, then, then they don't realize there might be a theory that would focus um, more on how to bring about happiness. So I do, you know, people are interested in being happy. And for some reason, um, this suggestion from ancient virtue ethics isn't presented to very many people, I think. Yeah, I suppose you do get some ideas around, you know, you ought to pursue something greater than yourself, be a member of a community. Yeah. But there often might also be blurred into these, these focus on what the, what the Stoics would think of as externals, like achieving yeah. some level of physical or mental health. Yeah. Well, that's like my, the best entree I, I've ever come up with um, to Stoicism. What I've been focused on lately that seems to uh, get them to be more charitable towards the view is how we can spend our whole life thinking if we only achieve, you know, a few things on a bucket list or, you know, create even the desires for things on a bucket list. It's a kind of a, a, tr a trick or a trap, you know, because we might not we know we won't get there. You know, if someone just thinks if they, you know, have $10 million or, you know, are thin for once in their life, you know, any, any of those things that people actually do, you know, throughout their lives, they've like, these, these are topics they bring up that they're, they have these goals or, you know, my students are young. So like, you know, be famous or successful or whatever it is they want. What the Stoics do so well, and I think Larry Becker does a good job of describing this, is they tell us, you know, you could look or they enable us to look at people who have achieved the bucket list. They're right there. Like, I don't know why people don't look more often. Like, you know, I've, I've had so many friends who just dream of like a vacation, like other people take. And it's like, they aren't even having fun on that vacation. You could ask them, like call them during the vacation. It's not changing anything for them. Like it's not, you shouldn't be so jealous. They wake up with themselves. But I worry it's like um, a little charm dangled in front of people's lives. And then we get to 84 and we're still thinking, if I only, about these things that we could have had explained to us will not bring satisfaction just because of the nature of how we practically reason. I mean, I think people could figure it out in a simpler way and, you know, just interview people who have done the things that everybody thinks would make them happy. But um, the Stoics have, you know, an even better explanation. Larry Becker puts it so well, you know, just like, we will have energy after that. Like you're going to, you know, even if you, the bucket list has 11 things, you've done them all. Like you literally have more agential energy after that. So what are you going to do with yourself? I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty clear to me, but I, uh, that I think is, um, a way to, to get to what people actually do believe about their lives, you know, in an unembarrassed way and point out that the Stoics have, uh, you know, uh, something to say about it, uh, uh, an edit. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Right, right. I think that's such a great, uh, great idea to to focus on.
I don't think they ever get, my students don't seem to get the impression that Stoics are lazy or don't achieve. You know, I mean, just, I never have had to bat that away. Like, so the idea that you can still do the things you want to do, uh, even if you don't, um, even if you aren't motivated by thinking that's all life is about or that you'll be happy after you do them, it's like, you can still do the thing, you know, in fact, maybe you, maybe you'll uh, be more focused, you know, but um, it's not like your achievement suffers just because you take on stoicism that I never even, I never hear that worry, but. Right. Right. Yeah. I, or I think you, I think people have different approach, high achievers. There are some people who are completely unstoic, but others I often find have internalized a form of yeah. stoicism or they've, you know, they're focused, so focused on the process or the activity itself. Yes. Uh, that no emotional setbacks when the rest of us would, you know, go, yes. go, go back and <laughs> lick our wounds or whatever that expression is. Right, right. Yeah. I, I love finding that. I mean, there are, it's amazing sometimes to see um, people who have uh, used stoic ideas without advertising it. I, I love when you, you see that work. Someone was um, convincing me that a lot of the leaders in the civil rights movement had had really taken on a lot of stoic ideas, you know, like the setbacks. You shouldn't take them personally. That's not even what you focus on. You know, don't don't try and add those up. And they were so they were so disciplined, too. And they, they had a purpose for like nearly yeah. every at their best. I think they had a purpose for nearly every political protest yes. or, or yes. move. And something that could be put in simple language. I'm a big fan of that interpretation of stoicism. Like we really need to understand these ideas, you know. So I, I, I like uh, the notion of sayables. Like, how about literally the things we say, not you know, not a not a paper or, uh, full of theory or you know something that one uh, percent of us can can follow, but literally something simple. <laughs> they can, that yeah, can work. Well, uh, one question I have that I'm curious to get your thoughts on is. There's a sense in which some of these ideas about happiness have been around for so long. So why aren't people happy? Big question, of course, but I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, I do think we're given, we're really encouraged. I do think society, you know, works against us in certain ways. Like with my, my 20 year old students, I always ask like, was the number one message you got about being a person? It's usually the women who will say yes to this, to be nice. You know, down here, it's like, yeah, actually, that's like literally like that was that was the message. Just be nice. And that's very misleading. Like that's something that you're going to have to, you know, take on, consider as a norm and reject, like refine and and alter because you, you know, especially at 20 years old, I think they start to discover like you just literally can't can't be nice to everyone you'd be expected to be nice to. But, you know, that wastes a lot of time. I, I do think we get a lot of bad messages like that. and. Um, the idea that, that parents are so anxious, maybe they always were, I don't have a great historical sense, but that parents today are certainly so anxious about, um, their children having, um, economic independence. I saw that in a survey recently, you know, just very, very worried that their children won't, um, you know, thrive in that specific sense. I know that, um, we pick up that kind of messaging too, and then we base our worth on, you know, how we're doing against other people or if we've, if we've, you know, achieved in the way our parents want us to. So I, you know, I sound like a, an Epicurean and a Stoic now, but I do think we get some pretty strict messaging from a very early age <laughs> that is not um, supportive of us figuring out what happiness is. <laughs> in other eras, it was different, right? I, I have older British friends who would tell me about the influences they got as children and they were they were different than these but still very specific you know you will not stand out you will do as you're told you know that that type of messaging i mean it it takes a long time to unravel that type of instruction yeah that's right that's right yeah i suppose there there's something to the thought that we're we're, we're just going to internalize some of these rules and misinterpret them until we yeah. are mature enough to recognize you know if you take about Think about like the lowercase stoicism. When when should you take have the uh, stiff upper lip? There's some yeah. wisdom to that general norm, but there's also uh, serious risks with it as well. Yes, and we do have that. That's kind of an ideal too that um, you know we get encouraged in is that lowercase stoicism. And I've only recently been getting told about this from um, 
you know, friends with uh, military families. But one thing I've had suggested to me a few times is that the the outward displays of stoicism, the small s stoicism that the military encourages, really uh, is not easy to manage in a in a life. You know, I mean, it's just so difficult to live up to those expectations that, I mean, they've acted like they're not surprised when someone goes off the rails when they're no longer being controlled in that external way. And, you know, how interesting. So it's like, even right. when we are suggesting small s stoicism is better than emotionality and you know, fighting with coworkers until you're 65, you know, even if we point to that as a better ideal, I think that messaging is really incomplete if, you know, it doesn't lead to actual stoicism um, just because it's, it, it looks close. <laughs> Which yeah, is the Well, how do you interpret the Stoic idea of living in accordance with nature in the 21st century? How do you think oh, about that? A, such a hard question. Um, I mean, I think I think some environmental ethicists have looked at how many different ways we use the the concept of nature, and they're, they're like almost 10 or something. You know, we really mean different things when we refer to nature. So like trying to get back to the Stoic notion is hard. And, you know, I'm sure I have several of those accounts blended. But to me, I, I do find it an appealing message. I think of it as a way to kind of reinforce, I mean, this is very, this is not that accessible. It's kind of theoretical. But uh, Julia Annis does such a good job of talking about our second nature. So like if we live in accordance with nature, all these ancient eudaimonists are like, we don't mean how you are at seven. Like that's actually a, a disaster. <laughs> like that's like an unmade Lego set or something. <laughs> you know, just like that's we should not go back to childhood as as some uh, ideal. Instead, you have to put yourself together. And then with that second nature, I mean, nobody's going to have the tolerance for this long of an exploit, but then second nature has psychological benefits. So once you've developed your second nature and integrity, then I do believe that you, like Aristotle said, you kind of feel the zest of, of life and like the Stoics are, are good on like, you know, you just, you feel a cert certain joy and satisfaction with the things you're, you're doing that seem ethical to you. I describe it as like a click. When I talk to the students, I'm like, you know, when you when you do something complicated that's ethical and that, you know, you've told no one, you just know you've done it yourself. It's like a little click, you know, you can actually you know, um, recognize it through the, the click feeling. But that to me seems a very, it, I don't mind the descriptions of how harmonious you feel in those moments. Like if I do the socially intelligent thing in a complicated situation, I don't try and like gratify, you know, bad desires or something um, that I, I do experience that feeling of you you do feel harmonious so i like it in that sense i also like when it comes to markets i mean ask poor aristotle like nobody would have designed these things you know like no human designed these things they're so complicated so i think of that as our markets are natural you know they're like our 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 organ system in our body like nobody would design these things exactly like they are if humans were supposed to understand them directly or, you know, or redesign them or something. So accommodating ourselves to our social and material circumstances, I see that also as a way um, that we live in accordance with nature. And then I guess there's one more if I haven't like droned on too much. <laughs> I want to know what you, what you think, but I guess the third way I think of, um, of that advice from the Stoics, I like, but I, I don't see it written up much. And it's where you do think of your life as very temporary and part of something larger, you know, not something you build. The idea that we build a life, I think, is like really at odds with stoicism. Instead, like, you know, we're just part of this great stream of existence. You know, we're part of this complicated um, universe. We're here for a little bit. We participate more than build, if that makes sense. But I find that comforting because then when you lose people or when you f focus on your own mortality, there's really everything continuing on. And I know that's not such a popular idea, but it's, it's comforting. <laughs> well, I, I do like this idea of focusing on harmony and harmonizing oh, good. with others, with the events 
that occurs. Um, and then also, I suppose maybe there's this idea of becoming more aligned with who you are in some sense supposed to be either as a matter of your human nature yeah. or, or some deeper, deeper purpose. Yeah. Um, do you like uh, the, I mean, do you take it in any practical way? Like, do you, does it, does it come up in your mind and like, uh, uh, give you a final determination to do something? Like, do you ever think of it like I'm living in accordance with nature in your day to day? That's a good question. I do think there's a sense in which when you're thinking about what to choose, or when I might be thinking about what to choose, at my best, I'm trying to align myself with a deeper yeah. reality. And in that sense, you're trying to live in accordance with nature. Yeah. Yeah, and in the okay. 20, it's, it's always hard to say, you know, like what's the actual structure of that reality, but you do have a sense that, look, I'm a social creature, others are social, the world's ordered in a particular way. And, you know, I'm agnostic of, as to whether there is some, well, that like what the Stoics might think of providence or some God right. at the root of it all. Right. But um, I think that's certainly possible. And you can live as if, as if that were the case. And there's, there's something about, uh, I think, I think that's to me that at least captures part of, part of a good life is trying to align yourself with your, with your sense of what that, what that deeper reality is. Yeah. I mean, there is some realism to it, isn't there? Like, you know, so if you're living in accordance with nature, you're not trying to completely transform the, the things we're given and, and that aren't up to us. And um, I mean, it, I always like this in, in virtue ethics, um, generally modeled on the ancients of any sort. Uh, you know, when you look at what other people experience to kind of set your your own expectations, I, I always think that's such a beautiful move. So you know, we can get so aggravated about anything bad that happens to us as if we don't deserve anything bad to happen to us. But that really is forgetting that like terrible things happen to other people who should have the same status we do. And if you if, if you're paying attention to nature, I mean, it's certainly our 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 nature is compatible with like, you know, incredibly painful, harmful things being being done to us. So, I mean, there's a bit of realism we might access too when it comes to like you know how magical our lives might be <laughs> right right yeah there's this aspect of embracing reality or living in accordance with the facts and that yeah i think I that, that that's a that's a very important idea both i think both socially how you, you set expectations for others set expectations for yourself yeah uh, and how you manage this these facts of fortune and certainty adversity yeah. that you that you face face in your life yes you see it like when people get um you know diagnosed with the terminal illness i work in in bioethics and you know some people are are like why me which is not a very stoic question and then you really see other people like well i mean of course it could be me i mean they mm -hmm. just like they 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 don't even need to take a step back it's just like uh, they were ready because they realize other people also get these diagnoses and don't see themselves as somehow different in a magical way. And that's impressive. I mean, you know, if you can control yourself in those moments, that's a lot of control. I feel like the Stoics would compliment that, that, uh, that ability or display. That's a natural Stoic of some sort. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. The philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Well, to what extent would you see yourself as, as a Stoic or is there, are there particular ideas that, that you wrestle with? I don't think so, but of course, you know, I'm 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 probably not thoughtful enough to to realize where I'm I'm not compatible. I mean, I get made fun of a lot for liking stoicism. I noticed that. I'm definitely if I wanted to fit in, I would not be a stoic around here. But I just like it. I mean, I I haven't found anything I don't like. <laughs> the providence. I mean, I like early on, I I never thought I had to attach ancient science to the account. I mean, I was seeing people put it in modern terms, you know, so I was focused on the theory. Um, but I, I just find it's um, very open to uh, all sorts of good suggestions from other, other views. You know, I don't, I don't see it as incompatible with some of the insights from consequentialism or Kantianism or um, even Epicureanism, you know, so it just doesn't seem yet like um, you'd have to, I haven't yet encountered a case where I couldn't incorporate 
great arguments from other perspectives with with stoicism because it complements our taking on great arguments. <laughs> right, right. So I, I haven't had any problem with it so far. Not that I'm a good stoic, but as a framework, I'm a, I'm on board with it. Yeah, thinking of how it's, stoicism adopts other philosophies or other critiques. I was rereading Seneca's letters and it's striking how, especially in the beginning collection of letters and the way they're typically ordered, how often he just quotes uh, Epicurus, the yeah. supposed rival, right, of the school. Oh, that's such a good reminder. Yeah. I mean, I, this is embarrassing, but like, I really think the Epicureans who recommended you don't have kids have great advice on parenting. <laughs> I love, I love, you know, I don't want my kids to be spoiled. I want them to like simple things and find them pleasurable. So like, that's Epicurean. And I, maybe I do have a difference with maybe the stoic emphasis on, on seriousness. You know, I think I do uh, prefer sort of cheerfulness, although they, were they inconsistent about that? I feel like, uh, I mean, there's some, there's some advice that you have to face the world in a joyful way. Right. But um, yeah, I, I just feel that they're, they're capable of uh, taking in all, all sorts of good recommendations and letting you test them. Mm -hmm. Yep. 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 Absolutely. Excellent. Well, is there anything else you want to add? No, I'm just so glad you're doing this. I mean, I, I, I wish I knew how to bring philosophy to more people. And like the answer really seems to be to do these really great podcasts. <laughs> so I'm so, so grateful to be a little part of this. I think people could great, great use of these ideas and, you know, develop them for us, et cetera. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use, and share it with a friend. And I'd like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. Do check out his work at ancientliar.com, and please get in touch with us at stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback or questions. Until next time.